2: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. So many of you don't know that I used to be a playwright. And as much as it pains me to admit, the most famous American theater performance of all time ended when the president got shot. Lincoln's assassination was actually the beginning of a cascading waterfall of consequences involving political maneuvering, the suspension of civil rights, and a nation reeling with grief but thirsting for vengeance. Today, we're talking about the fallout of Lincoln's death and the men behind the manhunt with fellow dramatist and writer of 1865, Stephen Walters. This is Too Complicated for History. too complicated for history. Today, we are joined by Stephen Walters, the Chief Content Officer at Airship. He's also the co-executive producer, co-creator, and head writer of 1865, the audio drama, which centers around the Lincoln assassination. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I think the first thing that uh, the general question that we wanted to touch on is, why do you think that America is so, still so interested in, you know, Lincoln's assassination? This is something that happened. Yeah, obviously, it's very dramatic and a very big, big event. That um, happened a quite a long time ago. <laughs> I think the reason that we are still so obsessed with it is
1: because it was a time of so many firsts, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. we as a culture have a you know, we lean towards the conspiratorial. I mean, that's that's always been something that I think we've been fascinated with as a, as a people. Um, I think human beings have that tendency. Um, there's plenty of conspiracies swirling around the Lincoln assassination. Um, and so I think that's part of it. But But I think the historical reason is because it is this moment of so many firsts, right? It's the first time that we've ever had a civil war, hopefully the only time. You know, it's the first assassination of a sitting president. Um, it's the first time that any president has ever tried to put a country back together in the wake of a civil war it's and this sort of battle over how this process of reconstruction in the wake of the war is going to go is is what leads to the first impeachment of a of a u.s president in american history it's the first time that a woman is ever executed by the federal government i mean there's so many firsts in the story and in this and it all kind of tr- is triggered by Booth's actions, you know, that that night in April of 1865. So I think it's a combination of those two things. Our baser sort of uh, fascination with conspiracy theories, but also the actual consequential nature of this of this event.
0: Yeah. And I think that another thing might be just the fact that everybody seems to be able to take sides on this one. I mean, like you're either a Lincoln fan or, you know, maybe a Booth uh, John Wilkes Booth fan, and so you're <laughs> hey, able to wait, connect. Are John, are John Wilkes Booth fans? Apparently, I know, so right.
2: Apparently, <laughs> so they exist. I'm not going to blow up anyone's spot,
0: but someone Lynn
2: and I work very closely with might be a fan <laughs> of John Wilkes Booth. Yeah. Whatever that okay. Means. I mean, like, well, I mean, I I hope that she is
1: more of an Edwin Boother than a John Wilkes <laughs> Boother. And if she and if she is a John Wilkes Boother, I hope she's more of a John Wilkes Boother pre April of eighteen sixty five. Um, although he wasn't that great either. <laughs> yeah. Right. He Sorry. Was
0: yeah. I mean, can we disagree? <laughs> He was pretty
2: there's a
0: fascination <laughs> with bad
2: boys, but I think treason may take it a step too far.
0: <laughs> this
2: yeah, is a so small too. step too far.
1: Slash <laughs> treason. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Lynn. I didn't mean to cut you off. Please forgive me. <laughs> no,
0: you you are perfectly fine. And in fact, I think what might be a good place to start is for for those people who have been um, maybe uh, living in isolation, or you know under a rock. Could you just give us the basic overview of the Lincoln assassination and um, the hunt for Booth, just so we're all starting with the same basis of knowledge?
2: To be fair, Lynn, that's not a crazy question. It's like, (laughs) I'm like, prior to, you know, us diving into history, I knew that Lincoln got shot. um, Right. By John Wilkes Booth. And that was probably about the extent of it. (laughs) so you know it's good probably good to go through the 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 basics timeline and stuff yeah
1: yeah so i mean i i think that first of all i agree with with Isaac, I'm not sure that it is commonly known what the full facts of the Lincoln assassination are. It's much more complicated, uh, than I think people imagine or people. It's one of those things that people may think they know, but when you really dig into the research, you realize very quickly that you, you just know the tip of the iceberg. But I would say that there are a fair amount of people out there who think Booth was a lone gunman. Mm -hmm. Right. And of course we, we know that's not true. We know that, that Booth, uh, operated, uh, as part of, uh, you know, a a conspiracy, a true conspiracy, Um, not not one of the fake ones, one of the real ones. He was working with a group of co-conspirators, and Lincoln was not their only target. You know, that very night, uh, the, the U.S. Secretary of State, William Seward, was, was also attacked. He was stabbed multiple times. He he nearly died. Um, and there's some evidence to suggest that Andrew Johnson, the vice president who then became the president after Lincoln, that he was also a target. There's even some evidence that suggests that Lincoln's Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, was potentially mm-hmm. a target. Uh, Booth did not act alone. He operated with a group of co-conspirators, and their goal was to cripple the United States government. You know, this is just a couple of days after Appomattox, right? The war, you know, that's another thing. It's like, we, we think of Appomattox as, well, the war was over. Well, that's not entirely true. There were still Confederate generals in the field fighting in the wake of Appomattox. Information traveled very slow. Some of them had not heard about Robert E. Lee's surrender. Some of them heard and continued to fight anyways. Um, and so this idea that the war was over and that it was all done and everything was over is sort of, is sort of misguided, right? Um, and in the midst of you know the the question about what's going to happen in the wake of Lee's surrender, Booth and his co-conspirators attempt to cripple the government. We, we we get into this in the podcast, and historians will have all sorts of things to say about the things that I'm going to say today. Um, I want to make one disclaimer before we go any further. The disclaimer is is that I wrote a work of historical fiction, right mm-hmm. and because it's so in my bones and in my blood now, sometimes it's very hard for me to talk about this subject outside of the context of my piece of historical fiction. It is heavily researched, it is absolutely Mm -hmm. inspired by the facts, but it is not. If you go listen to 1865, it is not a work of nonfiction, and I feel like it's it's worth saying that. And a lot of what I'm saying, I'm going to be talking about 1865, the story. I'll do my Mm -hmm. best to differentiate between these two things, but right now I'm talking about real history. Um, you know, their goal at the time that Lincoln was assassinated, there was no process for electing a president other than the vice presidency and the secretary of state. That was as far as the line of secession went. And so if you killed all three of those people, there was no constitutional mechanism to even put a new president in power. Mm -hmm. And so there are some historians who believe, and you know, I think there's a lot lot of credence to this theory. Um, there are some historians who believe that that this is what Booth and his co-conspirators were up to. They were actually trying to create and sow chaos at the highest levels of the American government to give the generals, the Confederate generals who had not yet surrendered, a chance to, to rally and you know, so that the, the South would have an opportunity to, to win the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't have to guess at the reasons why Booth wanted the South to win the war, he, he tells us. And the reason is, is because he did not want Black people to have the right to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of days before Booth killed Lincoln, he heard Lincoln make a speech advocating for what Booth called, and I quote, Negro citizenship. Booth said, by God, that's the last speech that man will ever make. So there's a lot of you know what I call lost causers out there. These are people that make up fake mythologies about you know what what the Civil War was fought about. Um, we don't have to wonder what Booth and his co-conspirators believed it was about. Just like we don't have to wonder what the Southern states believed it was about. They tell you. Mm-hmm. They tell you in their articles of secession, where you usually find in the first paragraph of every single one of those states, one of the first grievances that they list is federal overreach on the question of slavery. So this is what's this is what this is all about. This is about the soul of the country. This is about what kind of country we're going to be. This is about whether the forces of progress are going to prevail over you know, the forces of the status quo, which were very inhumane and immoral. That's my take on it anyway. No, there's probably some lost uh, cauders out there who would disagree <laughs> adamantly.
0: Pretty much anything you say in the history world, someone's going to disagree. So there's, that's absolutely fine. It's something you just yeah. get used to. Um, and it yeah. makes for more interesting conversations, honestly. And so you have yeah. um, the Lincoln assassination. You know, he's assassinated. And then you have these two dramatic things happening at the same time where they carry him to the house across the street from Ford's Theater and yeah. he's in the process of dying, but they're also, all of a sudden, there's this huge manhunt for John Wills yeah. Booth and his co-conspirators. Um, so could That's you give right. us just a little bit of information on, on those two as well? Because those are also part of 1865.
1: So the Civil War itself was, you know, arguably prosecuted not by Abraham Lincoln alone, but by Lincoln and his team of rivals, but mm-hmm. probably the most prominent figure, at least in Lincoln's cabinet, who made a huge impact on the outcome of the war, was his secretary of war, Edwin M. Stanton. Mm -hmm. Um, Edwin M. Stanton also, in addition to helping Lincoln win the war, he also presided over the manhunt to uh, capture John Wilkes Booth and his co-conspirators. And that begins just moments after, after Lincoln is shot and taken to the Peterson House across the street. Um it's the largest manhunt in u s history at the time, and uh, Stanton is the one pulling the levers and he's the one um, giving the orders and you know, I think a lot of people examine Edwin Stanton and this moment in history through a lens of libertarianism.
0: Mm-hmm. If
1: that makes sense, like I mm-hmm. think that the quest the moral question for some time about this story is, you know when does the government go too far? Mm-hmm. When have they overstepped their constitutional mm-hmm. authority? You know, you know, it's like it's this sort of like ends versus means question. You know, it's like Stanton wanted to find justice for Lincoln, but the things that Stanton did to find that justice perhaps overstepped his constitutional rights. Stanton certainly did not have the right to declare martial law, and yet he did. Right. He certainly didn't have the authority to override Andrew Johnson, the the vice president who would who would be sworn in that very night. But he did, you know. He did a lot of things that he didn't really have the authority to do, and he did them in the name of what he believed was right. And this is this has traditionally been the the sort of moral question that I think is explored. Um, Robert Redford made a movie called The Conspirator that it, that examines this Stanton through this very question of of civil liberties and the ends versus the means, and when is when is the government going too far? I think there's a more important dimension to the story, and that's the one that I hope that we get to talk about today. And that is the sort of consequences of it. Like, who's going to pay the price of the success or failure of those who want progress and those who want to keep the status quo? And that is, of course, the freedmen community, the community of freed slaves who um, have not up until this moment had a voice in society. Now you have, you know, a a dead president who certainly uh, collaborated with the radical Republicans in the North who were pushing for progress. And in his wake, you've got his vice president, who is almost the complete opposite politically and philosophically on the question of slavery, Andrew Johnson, who comes from Tennessee. And now suddenly, Andrew Johnson is in the seat of power, and Edwin Stanton, who's a lifelong abolitionist, is in his cabinet and is trying to decide what to do. He has successfully prosecuted the war. He's trying to oversee the manhunt uh, to capture John Wilkes Booth and his co-conspirators, but he's also trying to make sure that the radical Republicans in Congress who want progress and want rights for the freedmen, that they win this sort of question of what is Reconstruction going to look like? How are we going to put this country back together? Are we going to let the folks in the South who rebelled against us and started this war back into the seat of government? Are we going to let them write the laws of their own subjugation, as Stanton put it? Or are we going to create a process that they have to undergo in order to be readmitted? Um, Stanton wants to adopt a very punitive stance on Reconstruction. He wants the South to pay because they rebelled and they started this war. Um, he wants there to be a very strenuous process that they have to go through in order to gain readmittance into the government. He literally wants 50% of all of the citizens of those states in the South that rebelled, he wants them to sign loyalty oaths to the United States Constitution. There are some in Congress who want a lower threshold. They want you know, closer to 10%. There's some question about where Lincoln fell on this, but there's a whole other group of people, mainly Democrats at the time, Um, The Democratic Party, of course, looked very different back then than it looks today. Um, But these Democrats wanted no threshold. They wanted a policy of universal amnesty that all would be forgiven and that the southern states would be readmitted. So so Stanton is not just overseeing this manhunt to try to find the people that killed Lincoln and tried to take out Seward and tried to potentially even take him out and Andrew Johnson. He's also... Having to kind of navigate this political war that's being waged in Congress, and all of it, in the balance of all of this is the freedmen's community. So the stakes for Stanton are incredibly high.
2: Hmm. Yeah, that's a, a remarkable because so sort the of scenario to be put in because yes, you said that this grand conspiracy didn't you know accomplish all of its goals because they're trying to you know basically decapitate the, the 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 federal government at the time. But in in an essence, it it. it at least got pretty close to that because they threw into question this, everything that was on like all of the, the path that they were on. Um, yeah. I'm curious why, you said Andrew Johnson was on that list of potential targets. Mm-hmm. He seems like a useful person for the South to, you know, to take out. It's surprising for me to hear that, that they might want to have gotten rid of him as well.
0: So sorry for the interruption, but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors.
1: Yeah, so you're Isaac. You're di- you're dipping your toes into a couple of really interesting ponds here, right? Yeah. Um, one of them one of them is a really big conspiracy theory, which sure. is that Andrew Johnson was actually colluding with the South to facilitate Lincoln's assassination. Um, the the sort of the sort of um watered down or less extreme version of that is is that he was colluding with the South to help them get readmitted into the government. Sure. Um, I think Stanton certainly believed that Johnson was complicit. I'm not sure that the evidence supports that belief, but I believe that Stanton believed it. So why was Johnson targeted? Well, I mean, I think, let's talk about the historical record for a second. Um, One of Boo's conspirators was a a German fella named George Atzerat. And he was the one who was in the Kirkwood Hotel, I believe it was called, where Johnson was staying. Um, he was the one who was there to kill Johnson, and he chickened out. And uh, got, I think he sat at the bar, he got a little too drunk, he got cold feet, and he rode away. Um, Atzerodt would be uh, later arrested and ultimately executed. He's one of the conspirators who dies, if my memory serves me. But I think that you got to remember that at this time, it's all the parties are fractured. Right, The political parties, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, they're fractured by political issues that, that cross party lines. Nothing's binary at this time. And so Johnson, while he was a Democrat, and while he would have leaned towards home rule, right the idea that the Southern states should be able to govern themselves and that the federal government should not interfere except for the very enumerated measures that the Constitution lays out. Johnson would have would have believed all those things. Um and and while he himself was a slave owner at one time, Johnson was also a unionist. Mm. What that means is 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 for for listeners who don't know is is that means that in the lead up to the Civil War, Johnson was trying to prevent the war. And when the when the South seceded, Johnson did not. Johnson remained loyal to the Union. So, you know, I, I mean, I think I'm pretty unfair to Andrew Johnson in 1865. <laughs> he's not quite as bad as I paint him out to be, um, but don't don't mistake me. He he's not great. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think that yeah, Johnson is valuable to the South. Certainly, mm. you know, because he is willing to pardon all Confederate generals, officers. He's willing to pardon plantation owners who funded the rebellion. He's willing to basically say all is forgiven. And he's willing to let these former Confederate officers back into Congress immediately. No questions asked. Um, So yes, he is certainly useful. Now, is he a useful idiot? Or is he a, um, I don't know, a Manchurian candidate? I mean, these are all conspiracy (laughs) theories. I think that the truth is always a little bit simpler, right? I think the truth is, is that Johnson... Was an opportunist, you know. He was in a position of power. He saw his loyalties were to the South, uh, even though his political loyalties were to the Union. These were his people. He grew up among them. He right. wanted to unite the country. He actually probably wanted the same thing that Lincoln wanted, which was just to put the country back together and move on. Um, his policies were way more lenient, um, and this is the main source of conflict between him and Edwin Stanton, because, like I mentioned before, Stanton's policies are not lenient; they're punitive. Stanton wants them to pay. And he truly did believe. I mean, Stanton believed that Booth and his conspirators were a part of, you know, the Confederate underground, right? That they were working at the direct behest of Jefferson Davis, who is the president of the Confederacy. I mean, this is what Stanton believes. And he seeks to prove it. He tries
2: to prove it. And people die
1: as a result of his attempt to prove it. But he doesn't prove
2: it. That's such a... um... It seems like you're driving home an idea that like it's such an emotional <laughs> moment for Stanton, despite the fact that I think he's described yeah. as very like a very stoic or a relatively stoic figure, in for, by some folks, like uh, you know, of having like being able to hold himself together in the in the um, when um, or at least I think the accounts are differing when Lincoln is actually assassinated, like how <laughs> his emotional response to it. But regardless of what that is, like it, you're you're describing like a, an incredibly emotional uh, moment, an emotional drive being at the heart of of, of of Stanton, um, and probably a lot of people at the time. So it doesn't actually surprise me that you wrote a piece of historical fiction to help illuminate this moment in time. Is there, is there a reason why you went in that direction for 1865 versus, versus like, Hey, let's do something a little bit more, you know, straightforward, historical, you know, um, yeah, I can give you an answer to that. So in college, I, I studied theater at Baylor
1: University and my uh, co-creator, Eric Archilla, and I were in a theater history class. And we were assigned John Wilkes Booth as a topic for a research paper. Oh. And um, we were really grateful that we got it because everything else on the list was pretty boring. I mean, at that <laughs> time in the American theater, there's not a whole lot going on. And uh <laughs> So we at least thought there would be something interesting there. And once we dug in on the research, we were like, look, this is a story. It's not an academic paper. And we were both playwrights. So we went to the professor and said, hey, can we write a play? And for some reason, they said yes. So we got to write a play instead of a research paper. Nice. We wrote a very bad play um, and then you know, put it to, to the side and said, you know, we'll never come back to this again. But we did. We came back to it about 10 years later. Um, we applied for a grant. We got the grant. Uh, that, that turned into a play called Booth. Um, And that turned into a series of plays. Uh, One was called Mars, and the other was called Grant, and those sort of three plays that were less bad um, ultimately became a TV pitch, which then became 1865, the podcast. The, the plays were developed at the Dallas Theater Center, uh, which is a Tony Award winning theater in North Texas. Uh, there were also, there were readings done in New York. And, um, you know, it was a slow process of uh, evolution. But ultimately, I realized that the play was too big. The story was too big for a single play or even a trilogy of plays. It needed to be serialized. And that's when the TV pitch started to develop. And, I think I was pitching the TV series around the time that uh, Barack Obama just won Mm re-election. And I remember, I'll I'll never forget this. I had an executive, and I won't name the company or the executive, (laughs) but I had a TV executive tell me that they didn't think that there was a future in my story because they didn't see how a story about the origins of white supremacy had any relevance to society. This is back in like 2012, 2013, (laughs) <laughs> and I I remember saying, clearly you're not from Texas. You know, that was my response. Um, and I, you know, was committed at that time to not letting the story go. And in fact, <laughs> hearing that feedback caused me to pivot away from Booth, um, pivot away from focusing on John Wilkes Booth as a character and focusing on, well, I didn't know what at the time. So I started to research again and I dug back into it. And Eric and I often say that Edwin Stanton literally crawled out of the history books and demanded that the story was about him. You know, that's what we joke around about. It was like we didn't have a choice. You know, like he he picked us, we didn't pick him, he made us do it. Like he often made a lot of people do things that, that
2: they didn't want to do. <laughs> well, when you have a beard that magnificent, <laughs> like you demand to be talked about.
0: Magnificent, you know? magnificent beard. Magnificent
2: it's, facial hair. It was hair. the it's era a of
0: magnificent beards, though, if you've seen any civil war photographs yes, oh my it goodness. Was.
2: It's it just was. like weird but, but, heaven.
1: But that's why, that's why, because <laughs> what, what we realized, what we realized was as we, as we dug deeper into the research, we realized that Stanton was really the protagonist of the story. You know, he's kind of a tragic figure, but he's through modern eyes, at least in spite of all the terrible things that he did to a modern audience, he seems to be on the right side of history in many mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. And yet he does terrible things. And I thought that this was an interesting dichotomy and i thought that this was that there would be some interesting tension there and so um that's why that's why we picked stanton ultimately
0: and i think one of the things that i love about 1865 is that reconstruction is an era that sort of tends to be glossed over not really focused on because you know yeah. the civil war is really dramatic brother against brother and then lincoln is shot and then we kind of fast forward to like you know the, the 1900s and go into that far, era far,
2: far farther than that. If you're gonna, I, I think I gave <laughs> okay. you, I, I think I gave you like the general under. And, and this is not to to disparage anyone listening to this podcast. Obviously, you're listening to this, so that you this is not you. But <laughs> the general American's understanding of history is sort of like you know we were colonies, then the Revolutionary War happened and we were a country, uh, and then the Civil. But there was slavery and that was bad. So then the Civil War mm-hmm. happened and that fixed that. But then there was still right. racism and that was bad. And then the Civil Rights Movement happened and that fixed racism. and that and fixed that. that, and that fix that and then we beat the russians and now we're here like that's essentially the big (laughs) that's it there's nothing that's the level of depth (laughs) i'm gonna get this i'm gonna get this joke wrong but dave
1: chappelle one time and in one of his stand-ups he makes a joke along these lines and he says it kind of goes. american history kind of goes like this it's like it's like slavery or revolutionary war slavery civil war yada 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 barack obama
2: yeah, you know and I think that, <laughs> I think you're,
1: I think you're right. I think reconstruction is, I think it's misunderstood and I think it's glossed over because I think it's, it's, well, it's too complicated. You know, I mean, not exactly. to be on the nose about it, but it, it's a mess.
0: It's one of those things that if someone could say, who won the civil war? And you say the union. It's not that cut and dry, because if you really start to study, you know, what you're putting in 1865 and then what happened in Reconstruction, it does make yeah. you wonder what what did winning mean and what were yeah. the outcomes?
1: I think that there's a line that we wrote to try to capture what you're getting at, Lynn, that says something to the I think we put this line in the mouth of a character named John Mercer Langston. Um, and we had Langston say something to the effect of we lost. No, we won. We won the fight on the field of battle only to lose the war in its bloody aftermath, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. it's like, it's, yes, it's true that the union prevailed. Yes, it's true that the, sub, that the rebel army, the Confederate army was subjugated. Yes, it's true that there was a military occupation of the South, but it was very short lived. And um, the process of readmittance into the government, I mean, who, you know, you've, you have to think about this, right? Like, If in the wake of World War II, if the Nazis had been allowed back into the government immediately, I mean, what what would that have done? You know, I mean, it it would it's it's almost hard to fathom. And yet, that's what happened at the end of the Civil War. I mean, at the end of the Civil War, there were rebel generals in our government within 10 years of the war ending. And it's sooner. I mean, some of them, I think as early as the election of I think it's 1872. I'd have to check my facts on this, but it was pretty quick, you know? And and you have, you know, the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments are passed, but now you have to enforce them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like passing a law doesn't mean anything unless you enforce the law. Well, if you believe in home rule and you believe that the Southern states are in charge of their own destiny and that they make their own laws and that the federal government cannot intercede, then the 13th and 14th and 15th amendments are meaningless, right? And so exactly. you've got for the first time, you I mean, you think, think about this, you got the Department of Justice being born in this moment, specifically for the purpose of prosecuting violators of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. And that happens under General Grant, is my recollection of it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I mean, this is, you, you have to understand that, that the, the government that we think of today is not the government that we had back then. You know, pr- prior to the Civil War, we were almost like this loose coalition of, you know, nation states. And I mean, I mean, almost, I, I I think I had a historian tell me one time that it was actually a little bit closer to the European Union, you know, mm-hmm. that it really are these like sovereign entities and, you know, they stand together in their, their desire to be protected from outside influence, but they are completely divided along cultural and political lines and what they believe about the world. Hmm. And, and I mean, it's in, and, and in the midst of all this you have this question of, well, what do we do now? We we beat them, but what now? Mm-hmm. And just think of how different it might have been if Lincoln had lived. Yes, I mean, you I mean, if 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 Lincoln had not been killed that night, and Lincoln had presided over this process of reconstruction, I often like to ask myself the question: What would it have looked like? Where would he? Where where would he have fallen? You know, w- would he have been punitive the way Stanton wanted him to be? Stanton was pushing Lincoln to be punitive. Mm-hmm. I mean, Stanton was pushing Lincoln from day one he was trying to push lincoln towards being the lincoln that he became the lincoln that got him killed right, right. right. but which but which version of lincoln would we have gotten would we have gotten malice towards none mm-hmm. i mean this, this is another big question was malice towards none a strategy to bring about a southern surrender right. was it what he really believed or was it just it was it just an olive branch to get them to stop killing each other right you know it's like who knows i mean we don't really know which lincoln we were going to get and the sad thing is is i'm not sure it would have mattered you know I think that this this thing that's in our country this original sin the cancer is in the bones. And I mean I think that this moment had to happen but as far as glossing over reconstruction it's sad that that's the case mm-hmm. because this is the there, there are three inflection points right three major inflection points in this story um so far one of them is the original sin right the the third one is the civil rights movement mm-hmm. right we're probably living in the fourth one, FYI. But the, the but the one in the middle, that's Reconstruction. I mean, this was the moment where we could have fixed it. We right. could have gotten it right. We exactly. could have at least made, and we did make an attempt, but we failed. We failed. The, the white men in power in the 1860s did not get the job done,
2: period. End of story. So sorry for the interruption, but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors. Yeah, I think it's it's a shame that Reconstruction at the, you know, is underexplored as a, as an era, or just you know, it doesn't have the same le- level of interest as the, you know the Civil War itself and things like the amount of times that I did a class on Gettysburg g- growing up, like you know, and yeah. and and, and well, no, granted I'm from Pennsylvania, so it sort of comes with the territory, that, but the yeah yeah, yeah. but um, it's. We are still living with some ramifications. Like we're living in the in, you know in the in the wake of Reconstruction's failure, uh, and it it, yeah. it needs to be understood in a way that that any sort of wound needs to be understood. The healing, like you know, the healing process never really took place. Uh, yeah, and,
1: and earlier, I, earlier, I, you're right. The, there was there was the healing never took place, but also you know the promises were unfulfilled. Right. right? I mean, the you know to the freedmen. I mean, this is one of the things that gets lost when people talk about this story is that, you know, this question of like punitive versus leniency is not just about who gets to be in the halls of power. That's a, that's a part of it. It's also about land, right? I mean, 40 acres and a mule. We all know this saying. It has a very pejorative connotation in the 1960s and beyond. I mean, you have, you know, civil rights leaders like Stokely Carmichael that used to deride that, that phrase, 40 acres and a mule, but you have to think that at the time, 40 acres and a mule would have changed these folks' life. It would, not have, it, it would not have made up for the sin of slavery. There's no amount of reparations that can ever make up for the original sin. There's, hmm. there's no way to fix that. That, that's, that sin is with us now. And there's nothing that we can do for Black Americans today to make up for it. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try. I'm just saying there's no amount that's sufficient. I mean, generational wealth was completely eradicated by the policies put in place in the wake of the Civil War, by the Black Codes, by Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, there's, there's, slavery was bad enough, but then policies were put in place to just, you know, slavery without the chains, to to prevent Black people That's from it. moving up in society. And the promises of the Lincoln administration, 40 Acres and a Mule being one of them, Though that land was going to be confiscated, it was, it was confiscated from southern plantation owners, and it mm-hmm. was gonna be redistributed to freedmen in the south. And they were gonna to get to profit from the land as opposed to put money in someone else's pockets on the back of their own forced labor. But with Johnson, Booth kills Lincoln, and on comes Andrew Johnson. And suddenly, all of these policies about giving out land, policies about, not, and it's not just land, it's, it's about schools. It's about infrastructure, right? It's it's There's this thing that a lot of people don't know about called the Freedmen's Bureau, right? Mm-hmm. Which is mm-hmm. kind of Stanton's pet project. And it is meant to see to the task of incorporating the freedmen into society. And, and you have to understand that this, this means educating the freedmen. This means giving the freedmen opportunity. It means putting money in their pockets. It means um, making sure that their children are fed in the early days, clothed, given housing the means to provide for themselves. That's what this entity is meant to do. And the minute that Andrew Johnson comes along, it is under siege. And and the minute that the Southerners take up their seats in Congress, they do everything they can to make it limp, ineffectual, and essentially to eradicate it. And they do it as quickly as they can. And then while that's happening in D.C., down on the ground in the South, you've got the federal troops in military districts all across the South trying to enforce the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Mm -hmm. And then you see, in direct reaction to this, the rise of domestic terrorist organizations. Mm -hmm. Among among them, the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, who appear as early as 1868. Because in 1868, in the South, the Democrats got shellacked, and the Republicans just absolutely decimated them. And you see a direct reaction to that. And then what you see in the election of 1872 is an increase in these organizations. They're um, sending armed militias to watch the polls to keep black people away. They're resorting to voter intimidation tactics. And on the local and state level, they're passing laws that prevent black folks from voting. I mean, all the stuff we're dealing with now, Mm -hmm. they started back then. And Edwin Stanton, this entire time, is saying, no, no, he wants to put his boot, the union, this is a quote, to put the union's boot on their throat, right? He's like, the war is not over yet. We haven't won yet. If we stop now, we lose. Um, but Stanton's fighting a battle he can't win. You know, he, he can't do it alone. And even his colleagues and, you know, the radical Republicans in Congress, they, they can't agree among themselves about how to do it, about what's too far. And you have to understand that by the, by the standards of today, all these people are white supremacists by the standards of today, right? right. By our modern understanding of it. Now, at the time, this is not true. These, these people are trying, they're understanding that this has to be fixed, that this, this great sin has to be undone, but they don't have the means to do it. They don't know how to do it. They can't agree on the ways to do it. And they're dealing with a really insidious foe that will stop at nothing to thwart their attempts to, to enforce these laws. You got you got black militia captains being lynched, you know. You've got uh, you've got white domestic terrorist organizations wreaking havoc across freedmen's communities across the South. You've got them burning churches and schools to the ground. I mean, this is all happening right after the Civil War. This is not fiction, by the way. i no. these are all facts. Oh, these are
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just want to make one clarification for those listening, just to just in case anyone was wondering about the 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 titles of the parties at the time uh, Republicans versus Democrats yeah. because they, using them, uh, uh, Steven's using them in the terms of they, that they, you know, in, in the reality of that they existed then, but they, basically who was conservative and who was progressive and liberal were, were were swapped for for to put it in layman's terms currently um you know the Republicans was, the, yeah. was was like just is, a, is an easy way to understand it it's that the, the Democrats were the conservative party and the Republicans were the less conservative party they were the ones that were you know for progress and for change and for you know reformation of the government in, in various ways but you also uh,
1: have even even inside the Republican Party though you have you know what what would later be called the sort of grant what I call the grant men that's mm-hmm. the easiest way to put it these are kind of the moderate uh republicans these are these are people who are broadly in favor of enforcing the 13th 14th and 15th amendments right but not necessarily it's this i'm trying to think of the modern equivalent of this right like the radical republicans are sort of like bernie sanders and the moderate republicans are you know what i call the grant men are sort of like joe biden right mm. that's that's it's not it's not a one to one analog but, right. but right. you're correct i mean you're you're correct it, broadly speaking when it comes to social issues, the parties are kind of, it's like, it's opposite.
2: Yeah, there. inverse. Um, but I'll tell you something, that is not something that people want to talk about. They don't oh like no. it. You know, one of the the things that we stick our our, our flag in or plant our flag in is that, that that is just the truth of the matter of the time. Right? And then the truth of the matter of, of, of how the things happen. And, you know. I don't how, disagree with you because, yeah.
1: well, because, I mean, for those, if, if there's anybody listening to this who doubts that this is true, just google american political party systems and look at the eras of american history and the moments when party realignments occur
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and if and that's all you have to do is research party realignments mm-hmm. in american history and you will you will see that this is not fiction this is not this is not the you know the woke professors of the world you know, getting together in their secret Illuminati meetings, you know, trying to rewrite history and make you believe in critical race theory, you will see that this is just what happened. There are major events in history that cause major shifts in party alignment. And we're living through one right now. I mean, you can't see it. You never know the outcome of the story when you're standing in the middle of it. So we don't know what the outcome of this party tension that we're experiencing right now is. But I, I would say that the election of Donald Trump will be looked back on By historians is one of those pivotal moments that forces a realignment. And I think the assassination of Abraham Lincoln was absolutely one of those moments. Um, The the telltale signs of this are when you start to see a lot of party defection, people Mm -hmm. becoming independents, people moving from one party to the other party. um, When you see parties that have extreme disagreements on uh, the core issues of their party platform, Um, For example, you might look at the Republican Party's primary from the last election or the one before or pay attention to the one that's coming. And I think you'll see that the Republican Party is fractured and it is hanging on by a thread, right? This is not about the label of republicanism. This is about values and foundations and what do we believe and what do we stand for? The the party split in component parts.
2: And as Lincoln said, divided house and so forth yeah th- these points of flux, I think is part of the reason why our understanding the world in which we live and the, these points of fluctuation is part of the reason why you know, Lynn and I even do this podcast It's part of the reason why we're interested in history is because it, as much as things are different, that you know stuff like this has happened before there mm-hmm. have been fractures, there have been realignments, yeah. there have been momentous. Essentially, world-changing events that bas- that changed yeah. the entire framework and paradigm by which people lived, and that, and understanding how those actually occurred, the reality of what happened is, I think, at least it helps me make some sense of the world that I that I that we currently live in. And but before there's, we move on to, um, uh, there was one sure. thing that you brought up during yeah. uh, uh, when you were talking about what. How reconstruction went, and it was about forty During acres. My, inco- my incoherent rambling <laughs> it, was it was coherent. I would hesitate to call it a rambling, but it was borderline uh, but the um no it was it, there was a ton a ton of value there, but like valuable you know uh stuff history there but the one thing that I wanted to uh, you brought up it was forty acres in a mule, and I think that the um it being a pejorative sort of phrase that that since the 1960s is 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 you know true but Lynn I mean you could talk a, a little bit about what land meant because proper like the, the land at the time in the early Americas is mm-hmm. it's part of the reason why we exist. It's so integral to what the way like what americanism was at the time and what it meant to be somebody and what it meant to move through the world and be an individual and a person like it's so so integral that like the the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is based on life, liberty, and property. It's John Locke. Exactly. Pro- property meant land. It went, meant a place exactly. that is your own. It was everything. Lynn, could you expand a little bit about the, the importance of of land and what that would have meant to Because you're you're right in saying that that would have been cha- life changing. But I think it's in more more than just in the practicality of like, hey, we know land is you know, property values are crazy and land would have been worth a lot of money. There's a symbolic nature to like, I'm a person right. who was able to own a piece of a plot of dirt on the earth,
0: right? I mean, land was wealth, but it was also your ability to have your own independence. You could, you know, grow your own food, you could have uh, cattle, you could grow fibers that you could then spin and make clothes. I mean, it was, it essentially gave you your own independence in a way that you couldn't be given from the government or from the, the British crown. And so to be offered that, it's, it's hard to describe. I'm trying to think of like a modern, it's almost like, okay, when you buy your own house, now um, you're free from this renting where you're constantly giving money and giving money and you're not really gaining anything like you are with buying a house. It's this sense of freedom that when you have enough money, you buy a house, it's yours, you have a plot of land. It means something to you. It's something very different. And back then to have a plot of land it was like that it meant that you had a form of independence that otherwise you're depending on others for everything and of course when you're enslaved you technically can't own anything because under law you are a form of property and everything you own is owned by your owner essentially So it's sort of the ultimate way of moving from enslaved to an independent citizen and to actually be a citizen rather than just somebody who is existing in a nation.
1: I I, I want to add to this, uh, to tie this back to Stanton and kind of bring this full circle. Mm -hmm. You also have to remember that at the time, 40 Acres and a Mule was not something that white men in power came up with out of nowhere. Um, Right. Most people think of, I just wanted to look this up real quick to make sure I had it right. Most people think the origins of 40 acres and a mule came from General William T. Sherman's special field order number 15, Mm -hmm. which was issued in January of 1865. But actually, and that's true, he did issue that order. And that was the first time that the federal government had made such an order. But four days prior to that, Edwin Stanton and General Sherman sat down in a meeting hall in Savannah, Georgia, with 20 leaders of the black community. And Stanton asked, and Sherman, they presided over this meeting, and they asked these Black leaders in Savannah, they said, what do you want? And their answer was, uniformly, land.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you have to, so it's like, you know, don't take it from us academically that, contextually at this time, that this was huge. Take take it from the mouths of the Black folks who lived and breathed that era and that time. Love they it. knew what land meant. They knew that it was the keys to everything, to to generational wealth, mm-hmm. to the right to vote, to getting the black community sewn into the fabric of society, not as property, but as citizens. And, and that's, that's why this, this issue of reconstruction was, it really did center around this question of land and the Freedmen's Bureau and how to introduce this new population into society. And Stanton's right there at the heart of that. He's in that meeting with Sherman and he's, he's asking the question, you know um and i think that this it's you know that's not an inconsequential thing
0: not at all and i was hoping we could get back to a little bit closer to how we got to this reconstruction so you've got edwin stanton who clearly disagrees with um andrew johnson who is now becoming president and wouldn't johnson want to get rid of stanton so what what happened there
1: we don't know um you know, probably, like I said, uh, you know, Occam's razor, it's probably <laughs> that, um, you know, Johnson wanted to keep a sense of, uh, oh, Lord, my brain just fritzed. Continuity? What is the word? Oh. Continuity. Thank you, Isaac. I'm You're so welcome.
2: sorry. You're welcome. I, mean, <laughs> I, hope the editor, I, I hope the editor punishes me by leaving that in. Um, it, 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 no, it, I'll, I'll tell you that I, doesn't get any better when you have a kid. That that that, yeah. that, that occurrence.
1: <laughs> no, I know it. No, but I think it's probably about continuity. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you got to you got to think like I, in my characterization of Johnson, you know, it's it's much a it's a much darker reason. It's about political machinations. It's all these things. But I think the truth is simpler. I think that he wanted continuity. And, um, you know, I think he thought for a time that him and Stanton might be able to work together. Mm-hmm. You know, Stanton had been very loyal to Lincoln. Johnson was I think this is an accurate statement. Johnson was the kind of guy that wanted people to be loyal to him. And I think he probably naively believed that Stanton would. Would play that role, and they very quickly found out that that was not the case. And the radical Republicans control Congress at this time, mm-hmm. and or at least the Republicans control Congress, and mm-hmm. the radical Republicans have a lot of influence. Thaddeus Stevens, Charles Sumner, and the like, and these guys start to push their agenda, and Johnson sets out to veto it at every turn. Right? He's he's as 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 it was said at the time by one newspaper, Johnson wielded his executive pen like a shotgun. And so every time the Republicans in Congress are moving the needle forward, he is vetoing them down. And Stanton is working behind the scenes to basically thwart Johnson, to try to convince him to pass things that Johnson doesn't want to pass. And he's sort of, um, you know, he's he's sometimes playing the part of a loyal servant to Johnson's face and then sticking the knife in behind his back. He's absolutely working in concert with the Radical Republicans to, as I characterize it in 1865, finish what Lincoln started. Um, I don't know that that's a historically accurate statement, but I do think that Stanton's goals are pretty plain. I mean, Stanton wants to see the 13th, 14th, and 15th um, amendments pass, and he wants to see those laws uh, prosecuted. Hmm. Did I answer the question, Oh,
0: absolutely, Um, because I want to get to him likely assuming that he's going to have this you know continuity but also loyalty to the first impeachment of yeah. a president well,
1: but- yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll to set the stage for impeachment. Let me just say that that Stanton's manhunt is successful to an extent, right? He is able. You know, Booth is obviously killed. Many of uh, his conspirators are captured. Four of them, I believe, are executed. Um, among them is Mary Surratt, mm-hmm. who is the mother of Booth's principal conspirator, John Surratt, who's in the wind. Um, I believe by the time Mary is executed, uh, John has fled the country. I, he he. At some point, this is true. He ends up being a member of the Papal Guard. He guards the Pope. Um, you can look that up. It's, it's a fact. Um, it's really bizarre. But he did get out of the country. At the time, at the time I want to talk for a second about Mary, because I feel like this tees yes. up the impeachment. But at the time, you've got newspapers saying, is John Surratt going to come forward, right? We know John Surratt was a Confederate spy. Mm-hmm. Like, we know that. Um, we know that John Surratt was connected in ways that Booth was not, right? Booth was a narcissist, probably. He did probably have delusions of grandeur. He probably did think he was an inside man, even if he wasn't. All those things are likely true. But John Surratt, you know, he was, look, he was a blockade runner. You know, I don't think he was some master spy, but I think he was, he was working and doing the part of a Confederate agent in the war. He was trying to help the South win. Um, he definitely had connections with people high up in the government. And Stanton wanted him. Because Stanton believed that John Surratt was the key to proving his conspiracy. Because Stanton believed that he could prove that Jefferson Davis ordered the assassination of John Wilkes Booth. Mm. He believed he could prove that, and he was trying to prove it. And he believed that John was the key. Um, now, do we think that Stanton was playing a game of chicken with John when he ordered his, his mother to be executed after she was found guilty? We don't know. There's right. a lot of really com- complicated history around the execution of Mary Surratt. We don't really know what Stanton's motivations were. I, again, I think the simplest explanation is I think Stanton believed she was guilty, and I think Stanton believed that anybody who was guilty of helping Booth do what he did deserved to die. That's that's what I think. Mm-hmm. But then you ask yourself, well, why didn't some of the other conspirators, why did Dr. Mudd, who helped tend to Booth's broken leg, mm-hmm. why did he get sent to the Dry Tortugas prison? Right why was he not executed mm-hmm. and so it, it does there's no it's, it's 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 messy it's complicated there's no easy answer but in the end mary who's probably crime i mean look i think you could probably write in a play a version of mary where she's like a mustache twirling villain um i think mary was it's probably simpler i think she loved her son i think she was trying to protect her son um i think that she did not cooperate because she didn't You know, either she didn't know anything or if she did know something, she didn't want to do anything that might get John hurt. And so she kept her mouth shut and Mm -hmm. all the way to when she died on the gallows. And Stanton um, definitely pushed for her to be executed. Uh, The military commission that presided over the, the process, they recommended life in prison for Mary. But I think Stanton played a part in that being overridden. I don't know why did he push right right but one of the things that lost in the lost causers love to paint Stanton is like a you know is a Shakespearean villain type right who's just pure evil Mm. um but they never talk about the fact that Johnson could have uh, stayed her execution
0: Mm, he was
1: right he could have stopped it and then the lost causers go well yeah well that's because Stanton hid the the order the stay of execution order on under a stack of papers and Johnson never saw it, right? They come up with this like crazy story based on some anecdotal, I don't know, evidence if we want to call it that. I don't think we should. But but it's like, look, he's the president. You know, he doesn't need somebody to bring him a piece of paper. Right. I think if Eric, right. my partner was sitting here, Eric would say, "Yeah, but he 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 didn't want to be seen as interfering in the tribunal's process. So so he did need that piece of paper because that gave him the political cover that he needed to stop the execution. Um lest he be accused of you know, being on the wrong side of all this. Uh, again, it's complicated. I don't yeah. know. I wish there was a, a historian here who was an expert on the death of Mary Surratt to really shed some light on this. But I would encourage you to go research Mary's death. It's tragic. Absolutely. It's And there's there's photographs that you can see online of them at the gallows that are still kind of take your breath away.
0: And I think um, that's an important thing to just mention as well is that this was a public hanging. This wasn't something that they were yes. secretly doing in a back room. I mean, there was an audience. No. So this was not a secret and they had, you know, people knew about it. It was advertised. It's not something that was hidden.
1: This is, no, this is Edwin Stanton putting heads on spikes. Yeah. You know what I mean? This is him. This is, he's, he's trying to prove his conspiracy, but he's also sending a message, right? Mm -hmm. Um, he's saying that if you're a traitor, you're going to die. I mean, that's, you know, he, it's, Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and, you know, in in my dramatization of Stanton, I, you know, I, I play with this idea that he is driven and fueled by guilt, Right. Um, because Lincoln had requested right. that he have security that night at the Ford, Stanton denied him that security, which actually, interestingly, is the source of all these conspiracies that Stanton actually had something to do with Lincoln being killed because he denied him security, which is just ludicrous, mm-hmm. you know. But, um, but, I, but I don't know as a, as a as a drama, that's a really great motivator for Stanton to to take things too far, see that he's being driven by guilt, and who knows what the truth is? I don't know, but I know that Stanton believed that his military tribunal, that he was not just trying the conspirators, that what he was actually doing is he was prosecuting the Confederacy. Hmm. He wanted to show right. that these were treasonous rebels, that the government was participating in schemes to not just you know, thwart the Union's attempts to bring a war, the war to an end, but to cripple the government um, and to establish themselves as being supreme. You know, this is this is what this tribunal means to him. And um in and, in and, and large part he fails, you know, in large part his his message is is not delivered. And if anything, his tendency towards violence, I think, even undercuts his goal because it gives his enemies, you know, fodder against him, right? Um, and frankly, it weakens him going into the next chapter of the story, which is this this ongoing you know, earlier I said while well, the manhunt is happening, he's also waging this war in Congress. Well, the climax of that story happens in the first impeachment in U.S. history, and why is Johnson impeached for firing Edwin Stanton, right? Um, this has a lot of parallels to you know Stanton. I've people have compared him to Dick Cheney, and and he there are some you know, if you look at Dick Cheney post nine eleven, you know, there's some parallels to be drawn there as far as like superseding presidential authority, Mm -hmm. you know, taking the bull by the horns, as they say (laughs) in Texas. Um, but also he's a bit of a Jim, Jim Comey, you know, he's a bit of a James Comey, you know, he's, he's, his, his, his termination for perhaps dubious reasons sets off this political firestorm and results Mm -hmm. in an impeachment proceeding. And we, we drew that parallel as well. Um, but Stanton is fired by Johnson, uh, he does not go quietly. Uh, he kind of refuses to give up his office. He actually barricades himself inside his office. He refuses to come out. The Radical Republicans had passed a law saying that the president could not fire a member of the cabinet without the approval of the Senate. Johnson decides to test the constitutionality of that law and fires him anyways. And um, you know, Stanton's barricaded inside the War Office while the impeachment drama is playing out and. The whole thing is just—I mean, it's like you couldn't—you couldn't make something like that up, you know? Yeah. Um, Johnson attempts to take the office by force. He appoints a guy named Lorenzo Thomas, who comes into the office armed to try to take it from Stanton. There are witnesses to this event. Stanton refuses to leave, and General Grant plays a part in all this too, which we could—we could get into. But um, you know, you here—you here have your your protagonist and your antagonist about to face off, and you know, the future of the country is at stake. It's it's about as high stakes as it gets,
2: you know, it's remarkably dramatic. Uh, and uh, yeah. the, it, it, uh, it very well executed and incredibly well told in 1865. So if anyone wants to really get into it, <laughs> I would go listen to the podcast. Yeah. The, the, and you just, know, and the, listen,
1: I, and listen to the behind the scenes too, because yes. we talk about what's mm-hmm. fact and what's fiction. And we bring mm-hmm. historians on to try to provide a, a more, you know, honest academic assessment of these events. You know, we, We don't want to trick people into thinking that our version of it's the truth. We don't know what was said. We don't know what happened.
2: We weren't there. Nobody really knows. But, you know, we do our best. But what you do really effectively is, you know, this is an emotional moment. And that's hard to do. hard to convey when when you're trying to stick to like, hey, these are the list of four primary sources that we have because they were published letters of these six people. Like, you know, unless you get into the room, you witness the argument. It, it, it the human nature, the 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 impact of it, the, the like you said, the guilt, the emotions that were driving people to make decisions that led to those letters, that led to those you know proclamations, that led to those laws being passed, are really difficult to wrap your heads around. And you and you guys do a wonderful job uh, on, on the podcast of of, of doing that. Um, so I'd encourage everyone Thanks. listening to go to go listen to to eighteen sixty five, um, and you know grab a book, go go check out something, uh, go on, on this because there's plenty of plenty of stuff. Here beyond the you know Lincoln getting shot, the Books breaking his leg, six emperor tyrannus. Um, there's yeah. a lot more there. Yeah. There. There's all sorts. Uh, there's so much. I mean, even, yeah.
1: we're ba- we've barely scratched the surface of what yeah. this story. Ha- it's incredible. It's 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 a, it's a really um, dark but fascinating time in our history.
0: Right. Yeah. People need to be aware that when you start listening, you're going to keep saying, "Oh, just one more. Oh, just one more episode," <laughs> and then yeah, you're they're, holding they're the shot. Right so just be aware. Because you just want to keep, oh, the next one, the next, that's how good it is, is that you just want to keep going because you get wrapped up in the story. And Stanton's arc
1: is just the first chapter of the story, really, Mm -hmm. because, Mm -hmm. you know, Stanton ultimately, you know, the Republicans lose. Johnson is acquitted by one vote. Um, And that, that, that vote, that one vote is a whole drama in and of itself, Mm -hmm. um, which I would encourage you to research the backroom politics behind that, that vote. Um, But you know, Stanton loses and his lifelong ambition was to sit on the Supreme Court. Um, Ultimately, General Grant wins the next election and Stanton campaigned for Grant. Um, Grant wins and you know, Stanton has given up his office. He's resigned, you know, being secretary of war. He's struggled with this asthmatic condition his whole life. He's in really poor health. Uh, but he still kind of musters the energy and fights through the illness to help get Grant elected. Um, he does, and Grant sort of rewards him for nominating him uh, to the Supreme Court and he dies. Um, I believe it's like five days, four days before his, his term begins, I believe. I think that's what it was. That's heartbreaking. I can't remember. I can't remember if it was that he died before he was confirmed or if he had been confirmed and he died before he was supposed to start i can't Uh, remember but he never got to fulfill his lifelong dream and it's this great tragedy you know and um at the very end of 1865 we actually use his real obituary um as like a a way to in the series we cut Mm -hmm. it of course and modify it just a tick but um we we use the actual obituary that we were able to find and it's, it's really powerful but but Stanton's story is an entree into the next chapter of the story, which is General Grant's presidency and the mm-hmm. war that he wages against the rise of the KKK, uh, his attempts to enforce those thir- the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And that's the second chapter of the story, which is season two. And then what we've kind of teased up, we haven't released yet, but um, we've te- we're kind of teasing a third season which focuses on a little-known character from American history named John Mercer Langston, who was the first black congressman in the state of Virginia, um, who was actually... Um, uh, The Inspector General of the Freedmen's Bureau, that uh, government entity that I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. Um, and he kind of is is a central figure in Reconstruction. Little known, sadly, uh, he shouldn't be. He's uh, he's as impactful as Frederick Douglass, who's who's more well known. And actually, ironically, Douglass and Langston were uh, political adversaries in many regards. (laughs) You know, Douglas was, you know, Douglas was more of an incrementalist. You know, he he sort of believed in. You know, playing inside the system and uh, Langston was, you know, he's famous for saying compromise is a very devil. You know, he didn't believe that, you know, he wanted change and he wanted it now. So mm-hmm. he was, he was, he was more quote unquote radical than, uh, than Frederick Douglass, but that, that'll be the third season
2: uh, if, and when it comes out.
0: Well, that's exciting. Oh, well,
2: that's a cliffhanger for, uh, for, for the audience. <laughs> so, you
0: have
2: to, so you have to pay attention. You got to follow on whatever the socials you guys post on, or wherever you guys send updates, mm-hmm. uh, so you know when, when, and if that third season will happen. Yeah,
1: I, uh, we believe we believe that it will. It's really more of a question of when. You know, at, Air, Air, at Airship, we're a busy company. We we produce a lot of content, and um, you know, we're trying to figure out a way to make it happen. It's just a question of of when time will allow.
2: Yeah. Okay. So um uh for those listening, where um can they uh, go and check out what uh both eighteen sixty five and, and airship's other projects like where could they can find your work? Well, eighteen
1: sixty-five is available anywhere you get your podcasts. So I would say just go to wherever you listen to podcasts and type in eighteen sixty-five colon the audio drama, and it should pop up. Um I would also encourage you to visit airship.fm. Check out some of our other podcasts hosted by uh, Lindsey Graham. Not that Lindsey Graham, not the South Carolina senator, but the really fantastic podcast host. Um, He's the host of American Scandal, American History Tellers, and a show that uh, I'm really proud of that I executive produce called History Daily. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a a kind of a daily drop of history. It tells you the story of what happened on that day. So go check out History Daily. Uh, You can find that, like 1865. You can find it anywhere you, uh, you get your podcasts.
0: Well, this has been a really interesting talk, certainly for me. And just thank you so much for coming on. We obviously have a very busy schedule, so we really appreciate you, you know, taking the time to come and chat with us today and teach us more about Edwin Stanton and, gosh, reconstruction and that era in American history.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. This is one of my favorite subjects in the world to talk about. And if you want to ever do an Edwin Stanton Part 2, bring me back, because I honestly feel like we just scratched the surface. But thank you both, and I hope you give it a listen.
2: Thanks so much. Thanks
0: so much. Thank you for listening to the full episode of Too Complicated for History. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please leave us a review on Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on our social media platforms at 2C4H underscore podcast, or check out the link in the description. This will keep you in the loop for show updates, new episodes, and exclusive content.
2: Too Complicated for History is a podcast from Primary Source Media. Produced by Patrick Long and Lynn Price Robbins. Edited and mixed by Curtis Fritsch. Opening theme music by Sheena Biratella.